This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Well, hello, friend. I hope you're having a great week. I can tell you I've been running, and I mean that like physically. (laughs) I have physically been running. I'm trying to get back to four miles a couple times a week. I've been hitting three miles a couple times a week. You know what? I even had dinner outside the other day. And if you are wondering how somebody in Southwest Michigan could possibly be running and hanging out outside eating food, it's because the sun is finally shining out here in Michigan. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. It finally feels like spring. And I hope like right now, the sun is just shining into my office and I could just start singing in a choir. I am so happy to see the sun. Thank you, Jesus. I hope you're enjoying your your sunny days because listen, out here in Michigan, it was time. <laughs> it was time. I am so glad you are connecting with this pod class. You know, there is a theory in communication that says the more you know about someone, the more likely you are to find yourself liking them or feeling connected to them. And I am just so grateful that on this show, we are getting to feel connected to people that perhaps have totally different experiences than us or totally different perspectives. And we get to feel connected to them every single week. And it just makes me so happy. I'm so honored to to share in this journey with you. I want to read to you a review someone just left us. And don't forget, you can leave us a review. Like, you're allowed. It's fine. I'll let you. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, you can go and leave us a review. Here's the latest one that came in. It says this, Heather and her guests regularly discuss relevant and important issues. They fearlessly challenge my mindset and invite dialogue and reflection. I wanted to share that with you because, friends, sometimes the guests I have on this show challenge my mindset and cause me to say, oh my goodness, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've seen that from that perspective or that position. And I want to have a more global mindset 
when I'm engaging with with my faith and when I'm engaging with my scripture. And so I'm just so grateful to do this show. And I'm so grateful that you understand what we're doing here and that you're enjoying this, this pod class and going deep with each other. We're going to do part three today of our four-part series, Who is My Neighbor? But first, it's time for Social Toolkit. This is where we discuss practical tips and best practices for entering the chat. Today, we get to talk to our resident social media expert, Brady Shearer. Brady Shearer is the director of Pro Church Tools and Church Software Platform Nucleus. His work focuses on helping churches navigate the biggest communication shift in 500 years. So Brady, we talked... I don't know, it'd be a few weeks ago now, and you were explaining about the importance of storytelling. How can someone include storytelling in an online post? Help us in our content creation this week. So I got a DM from a church uh, two days ago, and they said, hey, we've been following your social sermons formula, and we published uh, one of our church's sermons as a vertical video, as a reel on Instagram, and it got more than a million views. So thank you. Wow. So I check out the post because they were asking like, hey, what about this post made it do so well? And how can we replicate that? And what was very curious about this specific uh, vertical video was that roughly 90%, if not 95% of the 60 seconds was the pastor on stage just telling a story. And the story was about uh, Mercedes, the car manufacturer, and how uh, in the 50s they developed the technology for the airbag. And rather than keep this technology for themselves, they decided to freely distribute it to all the other car manufacturers because they said, hey, this is going to save lives. It would be selfish of us to keep it for Mm -hmm. ourselves. We need to share it with as many people as we can. And at the very end of this story, the pastor pivots and says, and hey, this is what following Jesus is like. You have this amazing thing. Don't keep it to yourself. It needs to be shared. Mm -hmm. And I told this church, I said, one of the reasons why this post did so well is because we drop into the story in the very first frame of this video. There is no intro. There is no lead up. It's, oh, in 1959 or whatever the year was, Mercedes, and, and you're just like brought into it right away. And then the other thing is that bulk of the video, 90% plus, is that story before it pivots to the parallel drawing to Jesus. And so that's also increasing the viewer retention because people want to hear the end of the story. They've been hooked this whole time. And that's one of the signals that social platforms look at. They look at how much of a video the average person is watching. Uh, And if someone is watching like 50, 60, 70, 80% average because that story is so gripping, that's going to be a signal that the social platforms look at and say, wow, this post is really engaging people. Let's push it to more people. And even me answering this question, I answered the question by telling you a story about a story, (laughs) which meant that you probably paid attention more this week than in previous weeks where I went straight into the list and the nitty gritty details. Humans are naturally made to tell stories and hear stories. And what's amazing about story is that everyone comes to the table with different experience. You know, I've never driven a Mercedes, uh, but maybe someone listening has. And so that's their experience with that story. And maybe someone is like a car person and they're like, oh, I know about those airbags. I've read about that before. That's their experience. You know, maybe somebody else has an experience with their airbag going off. Like, oh, yeah, I'm glad that was in my... Everyone has different experiences. But what's so great is that a story is like inclusive to all those experiences. Everyone brings their own unique uh, life journey 
and can glean something from that story. And so injecting it into social posts isn't actually that difficult. You, listener, are good at telling stories. You've been doing it your whole life, and you're good at it because you've heard stories your whole life. And so doing it exactly how I did uh, in this uh, podcast segment is a great example. Someone asks me a question. Instead of going straight into like the why, the how, the what, I just told a story illustrating the answer, which was a much more powerful way of illustrating what I'm trying to say than simply talking in, uh, you know, technical jargon uh, about social. So good. Brady, thanks so much for helping us better navigate our social toolkit. You are in for a treat on today's conversation, part three of our four-part pod class, Who Is My Neighbor? Make sure you share this episode with a friend. If you learn something new, hit pause. The moment you hear it, the moment it strikes you and you say, oh, I don't know if I've thought of this that way before, please share this episode with somebody else. But my friend Natasha Sistrunk Robinson edited a book called Voices of Lament. It is made of 29 contributors of diverse backgrounds, indigenous, black, Asian, and Latina women from different generations. And together they wrote a book for all Christians where they just kind of leaned in to their pain and to lament. For today's conversation, I sit down with two of those contributors to this precious book inspired by Psalm 37, Bethany Molinar and Kwawana Banarbi. So I love starting these interviews by going through a piece of writing from the people that I'm talking to. And for you, I, I actually pulled this from the introduction for you guys, but I'm going to go to Bethany with this one. But here's what I pulled. It says this, and this is about the project Voices of Lament. Women of color know about crying over our dead and making public protests. We do not turn away when our loved ones die prematurely or are murdered and crucified unjustly by the state. We are Rispa, who stood watch when several of her family members were murdered by the king and Naomi, who lost her husband and her two sons. We are Jochebed, Miriam, Shifra, Pua, who cried out and worked tirelessly to preserve the lives of their brown baby boys. Mm -hmm. Bethany, if you could just talk to me a little bit about this project and how it came together. Ooh, that's such a great quote that just captures, I feel like, the essence of the book. Well, I know that our editor, uh, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, reached out uh, to women of color to be a part of this book, speaking from the space of Psalm 37, each person uh, being assigned a different section or being taking on a different section and then sharing from their hearts and from their experiences, from their pain, and also from their hope, what God is doing, what God has done, and what, I guess, processing grief, even though God's, I guess, mm. God's kingdom is unfolding all the the grief and the, the heaviness that we've all experienced as women of color in, in, in spaces of injustice. Kawana, Talk to me about the word lament. The book is titled Voices of Lament. And it's interesting because I think oftentimes in Christianity, and actually just in culture, when you and I jumped on the call, you said, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. And I'm not. I'm actually having a, a difficult day today and actually for the last three days. Why do we try to rush over the lament? 
what does lament mean to you? Why was it important to have that word in the actual title? Well, I think it's important. Um, I shared in a previous podcast that I think Natasha helped each of us center on our individual lament. For some of us, I think it was Mm. because we're so used to hiding behind the smile and going about day to day and all of that. So when she asked, what is it that you're passionate about? What is your um, outcry? What is your war cry? What is it that you lament about? Some of us try to be pretty about it. You know, we try to to yeah. <laughs> to make it suitable for easy reading um, and not be raw and not be passionate, not share it exactly how we feel it. And she came back to several of us and said, no, I don't want it pretty. I don't want it clean. I want it raw. And so I think that is the lament. The lament is how it hits you at your core. Uh, what is your outcry? What is it that you're passionate about? What is it that it's a saying breaks your heart with the things that breaks God's heart? What are those things? Mm. Um, And so I think that is, and everybody has their own personal idea of their lament. And I think that's what Natasha helped each of us to identify. And I think what's so important about that, that we each identified it in our own personal stories is because it's going to be relatable to someone else that reads this book, whether they connect culturally, whether they connect on the spiritual platform, whether they connect because they're going through in their marriages or just their day-to-day lives. I think there's enough in these stories in this book that there will be a lament that is relatable to every individual that picks up this book. I totally agree with that. I think suffering, unfortunately, we live in a world where suffering does mm-hmm. connect us in this human experience. Why do you think it is, Bethany, though, that we can know this, right, with our head, that we all go through suffering, and yet there is this temptation often to pretend like we're fine and everything's good? Where does that come from? I think it comes from necessity. Um, I think mm. women of color... And I've spoken with this about through with my therapist because I went through this burnout workshop that really wasn't resonating because oftentimes we have no choice but to step into the suffering to resolve the issue and the concern. We cannot take a mental health break. We have to get in there and like help our people heal, help our people walk through grief, um, get them and just to survive oftentimes. And so I think often for everybody universal, I think there's this, this resistance to stop and grieve and identify what's going on. And I know from a mental health and a spiritual standpoint, unless you're able to specifically name and resonate and sit with what is it that's causing me grief? What is it that's causing us trauma as a people and as me as an individual? Um, And naming those things, naming the specific injustices, naming the trauma, you can't heal from it unless you're able to identify what it is, right? It's in your body, it's in your spirit, and you have to be able to name it. And then just sit with it. And, and as people, for a lot of us, it's necessity. We, don't, we feel like almost we don't have time to sit with it because so we've got to do the next thing. We've got to carry our yeah. communities on our shoulders a lot for other people. Um, and even for us too, I guess it's, it's hard to sit with your lament. It's hard to sit with your pain. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't bring a lot of peace initially. We're a generation that doesn't like a lot of pain. And so it's yeah. just very difficult, I think. But it's absolutely necessary to sit in lament and processing the grief and the trauma in order to heal. And also in order to confront injustice and address it the way it needs to be addressed, we can't 
heal from the past. We can't make things better if we're not addressing and specifically naming uh, the way injustice has affected us at micro, meso, and macro levels. I invite our listeners to check out our YouTube video to go with this. My head is just nodding so hard as Bethany's talking because I resonate with that so deeply. Kawana, what was it like writing this and reading everybody's writing and having the time? I mean, this is the gift, honestly, for creatives in general, but for writers in particular, to be able to really sit with your feelings and name them and give vocabulary to them in this space? What was that process like for you? Well, I'll start by saying um, initially when Natasha asked me to be a part of this project and thinking about the words of Jeremiah 9 and, and 17 and 18, where it says, consider now, call forth the welling women. And then it uses the word skillful mm. in their lament. Initially, I wasn't thinking about the skillfulness of my writing, I honestly was thinking about the skillfulness uh. of my will. And so it took me really getting for the Lord, just being honest, <laughs> you know, crying out to yeah. God about what he wanted me to write about. Um, <laughs> I, I'll take a word from your podcast, you know, uh, when you ask, you know, how is God in this? I found God in this in that when I even go back and look at what I wrote and what was printed, what was published God is all over that because the details and how it came together, when people ask me, well, why hunger pains? And how did you start there? What, what was the, I, I don't even really, I, it takes me going back and having a conversation with myself. Okay, Lord, why do we go there? Like, why do we go back to the hunger? Mm -hmm. Why do we go back to the mama, you know, not being able to make anything for us, but soup? Like what, why? But I really think that was God's, design. And I think a lot of the contributors in the book would say the same, is that it really took them leaning and depending on God as to what he wanted to bring, to say in the book. What was his words in the book through us? So our laments and our cries, is it's our words, but it's coming through what God wanted to say in the book. I'm going to actually ask this question to both of you. This episode is part of our pod class that we're doing right now called Who is My Neighbor? And so I have this question for both of you. Talk to me about some of the tension that minorities feel often in their relationship to white evangelicalism and the institution. How do we navigate as minorities these tensions with the understanding and the backdrop of loving one another? How do we do this when there's been so much real pain the first thing that came to my mind when you asked the question, Heather, I didn't realize how similar our stories were um, as a Black woman and having dealt with, you know, slavery and the, the history of slavery and all of that. Growing up in civil rights, where America's Georgia was a hot seat of that time, I was not around during the civil rights movement. Obviously, I'm not that old. But when I was doing this writing this story and going back, talking to my family members and finding out how my history was connected to what is known history and then listening and hearing the stories of my sisters in the Voices of Lament and no, it wasn't that theirs were connected to the civil rights movement, but the different things that their families yeah. have suffered at the hands of this nation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's just be honest. I think the answer to your question is community mm -hmm. and finding amongst our community 
the similarities. And that's how we, I don't want to say just manage our pain, but that's how we recognize each other. That's how we see each other. And I think that is really what I got out of this project with Voices of Lament is now being able to see my Cuban sister and my Latin American sister and my Asian sister. I mean, I didn't have friends of nations prior to Voices of Lament. I did not. And I had prayed about it before. I'll be honest with you. I was like, you know, my circle looks too, we all look brown. (laughs) You know, I wanted some differing colors in my circle. And so this was an answer to prayer for me. And so I think that the hardship and the injustices that we endured and just being able to share that together in community, I don't want to say that's how we deal, but I think that seeing each other in that space has been helpful, I would say, to me. And I think a lot of my Psalm 37 sisters would say the same. I want to affirm that too, as you go through the book, you do see different aspects, but similar themes of lament, obviously, but Mm -hmm. that there's this bonding that happens through that. Bethany, do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah. So how do we navigate this and this space of this in, in like white evangelicalism? It's a big question. We got the books a little later. We didn't get immediate copies as contributors, but when we got it, like I immediately poured over the book and read chapter after chapter of different people's grief and perspective. And then, you know, not only current grief, but also there's a historical thread through the book as well. It was incredibly mm-hmm. impactful for me. It felt mm-hmm. sacred to me. The gift that it was to be able to read each contributor's piece that is coming from a place of deep mourning and grief and a remembrance of the hope uh, that we cling to, it's a sacred gift. And I think oftentimes as women of color in particular, we're not often seen in the spaces that we're at. Um, yet we are the ones running the show. People talk about justice. People talk about you know the kingdom of God, but it's unfolding in these spaces where we're often unseen. And so It's hard for me to answer your question because this feels like such a sacred thing that our sisters are offering to our Christian community. And I guess my tension or my prayer is like, Mm. will this be received as the pearls that that it is, like the gift, the jewel? Will it not be seen as trauma porn? Will it not be seen as a way to identify yourself as justice interested without really reflecting upon your heart about how white supremacy, colonialism racism has shaped the way you look at scripture and the way you look at your brother and sisters. And so I guess that's where my like tension and my hope is that people would come to this and just ask and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to them and to transform them because our gospel is a gospel of the margins. Our gospel is a gospel of the liminal spaces, uh, these spaces that the women of color in this book occupy and so it is an unfolding of this upside down kingdom that we're called to as Christians. And so my hope for white evangelical Christians is that they would come to this and allow their spirits to be renewed and transformed. And they would come to repentance as a result of this gift that our sisters have given through this book. And also recognizing it's a heavy book. It's right. not going to be something you're going to sit with and be able to read from front to back and say, oh, I've read Voices of Lament. Done. (laughs) No, this is a heavy book. And it's intended, as um, Bethany just spoke to, it's intended for you to sit with it, to sit with it, and to see 
see these stories and to see us to recognize what has happened. And this, this, like you said before, this is history, but it's, it's heavy. It's not going to be a quick read. It's yeah. not, not going to be a quick page turner. And so I, I want to encourage your listeners and the readers that if they're sitting with it and it does feel that way, then expect that, that that's not something that you should turn away from and say, oh, I can't finish this because it's just too much. No, continue to work through it. It's intended to be heavy. It's intended to be heavy, but finish it, finish it. I heard, I think it was Bethany, you said something about how there's hope here. And I have a quote of yours I'm going to read in a little bit. But first, could you just talk to us about that tension of allowing hope to sit beside lament? What does that look like for you? Yeah, I think oftentimes in our Christian culture, what we want to do and every sermon you've ever heard that maybe if you've heard any around lament or hinting towards despair or grief around the Psalms, for example, there's always this resolve that we want to immediately cling to. Like it's like we rush through the lament and get to, but this is what God says, right? Yeah, I think real hope comes from an understanding of what you are going through an acknowledgement like David in the Psalm, who says like, have you forsaken me? Like, where are you in this? I do not understand. I don't see you here recalling even in that space, like that I know that God is good. And I know that God is with me, even though I don't understand what's happening, but not allowing that truth to dampen or to shut down the grief or the mourning process that needs to happen, I think would be the tension of those things. Like, yes, we hope in a God who stands with us, who stands with people on the margins, Mm -hmm. Christ who came from the margins purposefully. I guess my hope would be is that people won't shut down people's grief or their, you know, through that by saying, oh, well, God is good. God is, you know, so stop crying, you know, for example. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org viraljesus today. Bethany, in the book, Voices of Lament, you write this. Here's a quote. I thought it was really beautiful. You say, even if Stephen, and you're referring to Stephen the martyr, did not get to see the end of the story, we did. We do every day. Ultimately, Christianity continues to spread throughout much of the world as followers of Jesus migrate. From Stephen's day until now, it bears good news message that comes with power to transform people and entire communities. Talk to me about the power of Christianity and its transformation 
of people and communities. I do a, a study for people that come to visit the border sometimes. Of, I call it the theology of migration. And we go through the history uh, from Genesis to Revelation and how migration is not just something that God calls important or says we need to consider, but it's a thread that the gospel, the, the story of man and God would not be the same if it weren't for migration. It is a critical piece as the story of God and man unfold. I think the story of the first church starts in this space of migration, and it starts in this space of movement and displacement. We forget that as Christians, especially in these dominant spaces where Christianity is the norm or the major like mm. religion or whatever in some of the spaces that we occupy. We forget that it came from this place of peripheral, of liminal, of margin. Yes. And so I think it's critical for us as Christians to recall, like we read scripture with our 21st century eyes. Sometimes we don't consider like what is happening during the time, what the people, their lives were like, uh, what it looked like to have the, the Roman empire, like squashing them. And so through the grief, such as people like Stephen, the gospel spread in this place of the margin and the peripheral. And it still does today. And and in spaces where you see the kingdom of God unfolding uh, this upside down kingdom. I do a lot like the, your listeners can't see, but I'm like moving my hands a lot. We do have a YouTube, so they, they can <laughs> okay. watch you, Bethany, if they would like. Okay, well, this upside down kingdom that should completely reorient the way we think about power and justice and peace and thriving that this is where the gospels unfolded. This is where the gospels first spread through the world. And this is where God is still yeah. working now. I love this conversation. Kawano, talk to me about what you think people might be missing as they view scripture from these dominant spaces that they will see more clearly if they go through this book. I want to say obvious, but um, I know it's not obvious to everyone, but it being obvious that the people of the Bible were people of color. They were people of color. <laughs> you know, we, we've seen all these pictures of what they look like and it's, you know, represented in plays and so forth of, you know, pale skin. And, and we know that's not true. They were people of color. The people of the Bible are people of color. And I think the mirroring of this work in Voices of Lament being women of color um, we know Jesus was adamant in showing that his disciples were not just the 12 men. He calls out the women as well. And so I, I just think that that is a huge takeaway. I, I think people need to, to have and just not just looking at the book now, but now to what Bethany said is they looking on the Bible with 21st century eyes. Now you won't look on the Bible with 21st century eyes that you'll realize that who these people in the Bible are and how you relate to the people in the Bible. They are marginalized. They are women of color. They are men of color. They are men of stature. They are low men, high men, you know, all right. of that, that we're all represented in the scripture. Kawana, actually, you just brought up a point that I wish I had written in my questions originally, and I didn't. Talk to me about that thought process of having this be a book produced by women. Talk to me about how that came to be and what that decision looked like. That's really more a question for Natasha. Uh, she was so intentional about that, that she wanted this to be women of color. And as she and I were on the fascinating podcast with Kathy Kong, she was sharing is that one of the questions she was asked was why she would not just do this book by herself, 
but she was intentional about that. She wanted to bring women of color to this book. And I don't know if this was Natasha's feeling behind it, but I think my feeling behind it and how I am grateful for all of us having come together is Mm -hmm. that it was needed. It was needed for us to be able to do this. And I think it was needed. Well, I want to read something that you wrote in the book. You say this, never neglect to recall your faith journey and the historical narrative of the faith of your family. Be like the psalmist, a storyteller. I was young and now I am old. Like an old black grandmother, Medea or matriarch, the writer invites us to climb into their lap or sit around the kitchen table and train our ears to hear a story about the bread of life. Talk to me about what role you believe women are to play in telling their testimonies and their stories to our generation and the generations to come. As you were reading that, Heather, I I was actually had a flashback to um, my work with Leadership Links, um, which is the organization that Natasha Sistrunk Robinson founded with six of her Naval Academy alumni friends. And I learned some years ago with Leadership Links that you're not too old for, quote unquote, bedtime stories. Like Mm. I learned with those middle school and high school girls, they were captivated by listening to an adult woman or man, have them sit around amongst the circle and share a story with them. Still to this day, my 16-year-old daughter loves if I just climb into bed with her and pull out a book and read it next to her and she listens. And I forget which of your podcast episodes it was when you were talking about storytelling and how the science of it is that we connect with the story as we are listening to the storyteller. And so To your question, I just pray that people would recognize, just as I share in my piece, is that we all have a story and that taking the opportunity to share that story, whether it be with your young people, your children. If you have no children, I speak to that in this book. If you have no children, you have the opportunity to share your story in a Sunday school lesson. Go to the library and and pick up a book. Volunteer. Um, Teachers would love the opportunity to have some respite while you sit with their children and and read a story (laughs) to them. But I think no matter how old we are, we do have the ability, and I would encourage doing it more often to just sit at someone's feet and listen to their story. And this gives you the opportunity to do just that with the voices of the men. Bethany, is there any particular person whose story inspired you, put you perhaps on the path to what the work that you're doing now? Well, I'm currently the executive director of Ciudad Nueva Community Outreach. We're a faith-based community development organization located in the Rio Grande neighborhood, which is about one mile from the international borderline. More so, I think about my own story, my parents, who though they struggled uh, to make ends meet, from the get-go firmly believed and enacted on the idea that our faith is meant to be Mm. lived out in action. So what that looked like is my dad, he's a biker that would minister to outlaw bikers. So we would go to biker weddings and runs and things with him. We'd go with my mom to senior citizen homes with the church, or we would prepare bags of food. Sometimes we would have to take one ourselves. But I think my my parents were people who sought to live out their faith. My parents being people that were marginalized, that weren't paid a living wage, that weren't treated well, that are brown people. And so coupled with that, I think 
the concepts that I learned in like my social work program and um, in community development practice or the ideas of asset-based community development, just sitting with the idea that everybody is fully made in the image of God just as much as I am. And they're just as complex as I am. And they have assets and gifts and resources to lead our communities into thriving the way they define thriving and not me has been something that we at my organization that I work at have really tried in the past five or six years to live into. So uh, what that means is our leadership bases people, uh, women in particular from our community, people who are trusted in our neighborhood, who are the helpers already there that don't get paid for it. We take their lead in the work that we do in our community. And now I I look and I learn so much from them. I come to repentance in my ways of thinking. um, I'm, I'm brought to newness of life by their example. And pushing into the belief that, you know, if God is present in our community, then God is enacting shalom and joining God there and not necessarily having to rely on the ways of empire to make things happen um, has been scary and really beautiful. And so I guess all that to say, my parents uh, were my first example and my literal neighbors in my community are my example now. And um, they are the ones that Mm. give me hope. Uh, They're the ones that walk in faith towards justice in our community. They're the ones who split the bag of beans that I mentioned in the book to help feed asylum seekers coming through our community. This is common in cultures of color, but like just add a little water to the soup because we believe in a God of abundance. We believe in a God who will feed everybody. And so, like I said, I'm constantly brought to repentance and to renewal by their example. Who is my neighbor? Every person made in the image of God. The book is called Voices of Lament. There are 29 women of color who contributed to this book and you can get it right now. Pause the episode. I do not mind. Purchase it. Share it with a friend. It is super impactful and important. Puana and Bethany, my tagline this season for Viral Jesus is to encourage people to enter the chat in a time when social media has so many negatives around it, which I think are legitimate At Viral Jesus, we want to encourage people to take ownership of their communication online and off. I'll start with you, Bethany. How do you choose to be a redemptive voice in the online space? I believe that God is actively working in our communities and God is actively working in spaces, every space before we get there. And so my hope is to join God in that space and also to come with that mindset of, I'm not the savior. I'm not bringing the light, Mm. that the light is there and I want to join God where God is. Something that is powerful for me and transformative for me and something you've mentioned is the power of story. And so I think we talk a lot about justice. We talk a lot about the importance of listening to voices of color and seeing voices of community. I want us to share more. My hope is that people would share like tiny revolutionary acts of justice that are happening in their communities, even things that you think that maybe other people would miss, like share how God is working in your community, Uh, amplify people of color, amplify Mm. their stories, give them platform. Don't just say you need to pass the mic, but pass the mic, like do it. Um, So many thoughts, but I think the power of story and also let's actually act in justice and not just stop talking about it. We still need to talk about it, but act in revolutionary ways, small and big, uh, towards Shalom. So good. Kawana, how do you choose to be a redemptive voice in the online space? Well, I think about my, I'm not as vocal online as I want to be. (laughs) So you're an encouragement there, Heather. Oh, thank Um, you. Thank you. I do have a, a Instagram page and you'll find if I've posted any lives on Instagram, there are prayers. I will share mm. when I'm praying 
in the morning is sometimes it's dark. Um, but when the Lord hits me with the word, then I share it, you know, because it's not important about you seeing my face in the dark. It's about you hearing what God has spoken to me. And so my hope is that even those prophetic words that come about from the people of God, who God is using to speak into these situations and these margins, that people would be more um, attentive and brave and courageous in just sharing what God has said and what God is saying and pray to just continue to pray. And um, I learned from my husband actually to pray out loud. My mom taught me to pray on the side of my bed and silently at my feet or kneeling to my feet. But my husband is the one that taught me to walk the room and to pray out loud. And so that would be my hope is that people will begin to pray out loud Amen. The book is called Voices of Lament. My dear friend, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, is the editor of it. There are 29 women of color who contributed to this book. It is fantastic. We do not have to shy away from pain because it's actually the most common thing that we'll experience in humanity. I encourage you to take a look at this book. Thank you both so much for joining us on this episode. So what can we learn from our conversation with Voices of Lament contributors Bethany Molinar and Kwana Banarbi? Number one, Kwana said that we don't have to be pretty about our lament. Sometimes life isn't clean and sometimes life isn't, it's not pretty. It's life. And lament is our human expression of that reality. Number two, Bethany said that she feels like often in culture, there is a resistance to our own grief. We don't have time, we feel like, to stop because I I get it, we're trying to survive. But Bethany says, unless we are able to name and give vocabulary to our pain, we will never allow ourselves to heal. We cannot heal from what we haven't lamented. We can't heal from what we aren't willing to identify. Number three, Fuwana said that it's important to remember as we engage with stories from marginalized voices that the people of the Bible were people of color. Communities of color have been largely erased in theological publications or conversations, but we have to remember that the setting of scripture was not in 21st century America. Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew. That's our Messiah. May we remember that as we ask ourselves, who is my neighbor?
Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Next week, we sit down for part four of our pod class, Who Is My Neighbor? I'm going to close this out by asking Shannon Martin, the woman who literally wrote the book on what being a good neighbor looks like to join me. I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.